0: Are you ready for an open discussion with the best of the best and the best of what's next? Welcome to the Tony D'Urso Show. Join in on a great conversation today with some of the world's great influencers as they showcase great advice and techniques that made them the game changers they are today. Now, here's Tony D'Urso. Welcome,
1: thanks for joining in with us. Now, you're a leader in this post-pandemic world, and you know one thing for certain, one thing, you know, a lot of your role has changed. And employee expectations in being in a workplace has really shifted a lot, greatly shifted. And you know that, and you're getting more and more used to it, to having employees all around the globe. Perhaps that makes more work for you and perhaps that gets less work actually done. I feel it myself. I feel that maybe I get less work done from having people do things around the world, but there's a convenience to it. But I wanna ask you this one question. When does it all end? When does it all get sorted out? So I tell you what, let's work on that now. We're gonna talk about the new leadership playbook with Andrew Bryant. And while you're at it, this is all about helping you and your friends turn your vision into reality. We want to help you get really successful, very successful, super successful at growing your business to a high, sustainable level. Well, meet Andrew Bryant. He's the world's leading expert on self-leadership. So if you're not familiar with him yet, zone in on this and let's get to know him. I think that says it all. Let's get, let's get into it. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the Tony Dierso Show.
0: Hi, Tony. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Andrew, we're all looking forward to getting our wits, our brain, and everything around the new leadership playbook. So let's kind of go back a little bit and tell me, how did it all start?
0: Okay. So the new leadership playbook actually was commissioned by one of my clients. So... I work as an executive coach, as a C-suite advisor, and I was working with CEO and his executive leadership team, as is the thing that I normally do. And the chief people officer said, we love what you've done for us as the executive leadership team, but we need a playbook for our managers. So everybody is saying the same thing and using some of the methodology that you've taught us. Could you write a book? And, um, I've written books before and I said, we, we, we discussed this, we negotiated it. And I said, yeah, I can write a book for your company, but I want to hang on to the IP and write a book for everybody. If I'm going to write a book, I want to write it so that everybody has access. So typically a leadership book comes at it from 40,000 feet. I know this because I, 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 I'm external faculty on a few MBA programs, but the intention of this book is to create a playbook, just like in American football, where a play is a series of set moves. This is a book that has 12 plays, which are really conversations that managers, leaders, entrepreneurs need to have with their people to deliver results. So uh, that's how the book came about.
1: Let me kind of ask something about that. Okay. So you were asked to write this book. So when my audience is thinking, you know, You're, you're, you're an expert on self-leadership. What's your backstory? What made you to be this expert that then brought about this book?
0: Well, then we have to go back a very, very long time. I mean, I had a birthday this this week and I turned 61. So we have to go all the way back to when I was 21 and I graduated as a physiotherapist in the UK, in England. I was going to do medicine. Um, I was a good science student, but then they merged my boys' grammar school with a girls' high school just before my A-levels, before university. And uh, I don't know what happened, but my grades took a bit of a dip and I did physiotherapy. Now, physiotherapy in the US, you would know that as physical therapy. Um, in, In the UK, it has a little bit more of a broader scope. I graduated, worked in hospitals for a couple of years, and then did what most male physiotherapists do is I worked in sport. I worked with first division soccer team. I worked with Olympic athletes. I worked with a ballet company. And working in sport, you get interested in the psychology right? Yeah. I mean, I was, I graduated in the eighties when the research around goal setting happened. And so we were looking at what is the difference that makes the difference? What's the difference between, you know, people can train the same, but why does one team win? And so I got interested in this and I got interested in the concept of coaching and I moved to Australia and I set up a chain of uh, physiotherapy. By this time, I was a graduate in acupuncture. I had a chain of clinics. I opened up a, I opened up a holistic wellness center, and I started working with companies who were sponsoring those sports. And one of the managing directors said, "Hey, you help my my sports team win. Come and work with my management team because they kind of suck." <laughs> and uh, that's how the transition happened. Uh, I went in with a, with a blank sheet of paper and I watched behaviors and I watched how these managers talk to each other and how they talk to their teams. And so I was looking at behavior in context. And that's very important when we think about leadership, a lot of people, you know, I've written books on leadership. People ask, you know, what's the best type of leadership? Well, it depends on context and the kind of people that you're leading. So, that was the beginning of my framework. I, I had a, I had a bit of imposter syndrome because I didn't have an MBA. So I went off to get one and realized that I didn't agree with some of the things that were being taught on the MBA program. And I had a great lecturer who said, you've got some good ideas. You don't agree with me. So go write your own book. And <laughs> here we are four books later.
1: <laughs> it's a really interesting story. And I have to say, and I have to admit Prior to this interview, I never really heard the term self leadership. And if I ever did, it went over my head. So I'm thinking you're the expert on self leadership. So out of all this training, I get that, but somewhere along the, a lot, somewhere along the line, this concept came self leadership and you realized perhaps that you were very good at it and that you could teach it. So tell us about that vision and how that came about that I was like, that aha, like, hey, it's self leadership that's important.
0: Well, again, we have to go back a little while. It was the late 1990s, and I had started this methodology, and I didn't have a name for it. And I was—I'd been to a professional speakers' meeting, and I was having a coffee afterwards with an organizational psychologist, and he was curious about what I was doing because it overlapped with his work. And he said, well, what's, you know, what's your, your your pedagogy or your andragogy? What's your methodology? And I said, well, it's about people taking ownership for themselves and and being, you know, taking responsibility, being self-directed. And he actually used the term. He said, oh, you mean like self-leadership? And I said, yeah, that's it. And I thought we had invented the term at that point. And, and I created a company, Self-Leadership International. I own the URL, selfleadership.com. That was probably 1998, 1999. But there was a guy that used the term and the definition in 1985, 87. And uh, and, uh, so I I don't own it. Um, But I did in 2012 with Dr. Anna Kazan write the textbook in which the definition, which if you Google the definition, you'll probably find, which is the practice of intentionally influencing your thinking Feeling and actions towards your objectives, and let me deconstruct that for you and for your listeners. It's a practice. Now, if anybody's old enough to remember Zig Ziglar, the motivational sales trainer in in the U.S., and um, Zig used to, you know, Zig used to say motivation is like taking a shower. The effect is not permanent, and so self leadership is like taking a shower. It is a practice. I've been writing, coaching, speaking about self-leadership for over 20 years, and every now and again my wife will tell me if I'm having a meltdown, go self-leadership yourself. So (laughs) it is a practice um, of intentionally influencing your thinking, feeling, and actions. And so it's, it's a daily practice, but it is about intention and influence. We have to own our thinking and feeling rather than our thinking and feeling owning us. And this is the ownership, the responsibility, and uh, the absence of self-leadership is very easy to spot. It's blaming, complaining, and playing the victim. So if you're doing any of those three, you're not in self-leadership at that point. And if you're leading people, managing people who are blaming, complaining, and playing the victim, they are not taking ownership
1: they need to go take that shower, that self-leadership
0: shower. (laughs) Well, you know, it's a, it's a physical and metaphorical shower. I mean, sometimes just taking a shower is a good idea, taking a breath, you know, taking a break, taking a step back from the things that trigger us so that we can get back to being intentional again. And, and it's, it's, it really is take, yeah, a a state interrupt, a break, a, a deep breath, a cold shower, a glass of water, whatever you need to do because, psychologists are showing we have very little free will, um, certainly a lot less than we thought we did because from the moment of our birth, you know, the mother carries us for nine months and then, you know, delivers us and the midwife or the doctor holds us up, smacks us on the bottom. We may let out a bit of a cry. And then within a few moments, we give them a name, a nationality, an ethnicity, and possibly a religion and a football team to follow. We've been framed. And then never you know, we have our early chuff. Yeah. Well, it depends where in the world I'm speaking. You know, if I'm speaking in India, I say cricket team. So, um, you know, even that's culturally specific, right? So you're born into a framework and it takes a level of energy to step back from that and get intentional and say, well, what do I choose for myself? What's been programmed for me? And, you know, as we go through life, you know, there are various times. I don't know that you've had this experience, Tony, you're acting out and you are I'm being my dad or I'm being my mom. And you've been carrying that program all these years. This is why therapists are, you know, in, you know are very busy because people, oh my goodness, I've got to get that out of my head. Well, self-leadership is, is saying, hang on a moment, you know, what do I want? What's important to me? Where am I going? What are my objectives? And then taking ownership for that setting out on the behaviors that will move you towards the best version of yourself.
1: I really like that because I can see right away that it's all about getting the person to accept responsibility for what the person is doing. Instead of standing there, I'm just going to be really simple, simple graphic. Somebody knocked over the trash, you know, it's metaphorical. Instead of complaining and screaming, just bend down and pick it up. it, It takes less effort And it's more fun to do that than to jump up and down. And yet we see that in, in society, in, in the workplace too much. So now I get that you're doing this and I really want to go into self-leadership, some of the methodology, some of the tips and, and techniques. But the one question I have before I kind of jump into that platform is why, why are you doing this, Andrew? What's your purpose behind all this?
0: if if i have a purpose it's to wake people up i mean the thing that that um I, I i took a stand-up comedy class decades ago and um and the the instructor said you know the humor is in the things that irritate you right the things that annoy you and i did a whole comedy skit about you know how i used to get frustrated when you you had to put your stuff in the, in the tray to go through security at the airport. And then somebody would climb over the top of you to get to their stuff. And I'm like, we're at the gate, you know, the plane's not going to take off anymore. Why? And so the thing that used to trigger me is, is paradoxically other people being triggered. Um, you know, (laughs) you know, the joke is I can't tolerate intolerant people. Right. And (laughs) so, you know, Teach best what you found hardest to learn. Why did I get into self leadership? Because I had to take ownership of my life and say, "Well, what's important?" I've been through uh, a few challenges. Um, I went through a business disruption, um, and you know, I've been through the global financial crisis. I've been through health crisis. I've been through the divorce thing, come out the other side. You know, all of those various life challenges that the temptation to have a pity party, suck my thumb, et cetera, and and blame everybody else was there, but I got out of it, pulled myself up for the bootstraps and was better on the other side. So when I see people stuck, I want to shake them and say, wake up, take ownership. There is, there is a better life for you. When you do that, when you, when you accept, as you said, when you adjust your behaviors, then you can advance. And so why do I do it? Because, you know, I'm, I'm like the guy that gave up smoking and wants everybody else to give up smoking, or even worse, the vegans who want to convert everybody else. I'm like that person. I'm like, there's an opportunity here for you, not only to lead yourself, but when we can lead ourselves, then we can influence others to lead themselves. And that's what, for me, leadership is all about, is empowering and engaging others to be the best version of themselves. And hence the new leadership playbook.
1: And we're talking about the new leadership playbook with Andrew Bryant, and you can find him at selfleadership.com, selfleadership.com, and check it out. This is really interesting, and I want to kind of get into your vision path on here and and get my brain around this. So let me kind of think with this. Um, one of the things that I think can, can come at odds on the self-leadership that we've defined already is... I've got to make a target. I'm in a rush. I've got to make a deadline. It's. I am so used to uh, many years in the corporate world being yelled at, you know, we got to get this done. It's got to get done. You know, it's like, boom, it, it. it's kind of similar. And it's like, well, you could say that may or may not be good leadership. We're not going to go there. But I'm saying, how do you practice that when you've got you're in a rush. You've got something. You can't sit around and, and deal with the babies or whatever. I, I'm going to just leave it right there and give it over to you and, uh, and, and help us through this.
0: Okay. Well, there's a number of ways of approaching that. The first is to articulate the tagline of this, of this book, which is being human whilst successfully delivering accelerated results. So as you point out, it's a reality in business that we have deadlines. We have targets and you could be the most empathetic and engaging and loved leader. But if you don't deliver on your targets, your tenure is temporary. You're not going to last. We have to deliver on targets. The question is, can we be human to do it? And the reality is that we only achieve those targets if we are empowering, engaging and leveraging the humanity. And why? why do we need a new leadership playbook? Because many of the leadership principles have been around since the dawn of time. But because we've had two years of people taking greater ownership and responsibility as they work from home, as they had to manage themselves much more than having somebody lean over the desk. So we are actually now leading people who have greater autonomy and greater responsibility. And I think it's dangerous to try and turn the the clock back. Yes, we want people to come back to the workplace, but we have to think about more intelligent ways about how do we get the best out of people nine to five leaning over and yelling at people has not delivered the best results. When you've got empowered, engaged people who are passionate about an objective where the company's objectives are aligned to the individual's advancement, those organizations are leaving the others in the dust. So, whilst it feels like a real adrenaline rush to yell at people and get things done, be the sergeant major, it's only good for things that are repetitive or fairly simple. If you want people to bring their best, you got to do it a different way. And that's what we should be discussing.
1: Okay. And one thing I'm thinking with all of this is, as I mentioned in the intro, is we have this new paradigm shift over the past couple of years. You've talked about it. I've talked about it. Most of, well, I don't even know if most employees are home. Just let's just say a lot more employees work from home and things are different. And I think that throws in huge challenges to this self-leadership. So, how do we solve that? How do we deal with that as the leader?
0: Well, I, I don't know whether it's. A, I, I think self leadership is the answer to this. Is 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 being a self leader and encouraging that in others. It's very difficult to encourage an environment of self leaders if you're not practicing it yourself, right? It's you know not do as I say, not as I do, right? The the clear uh research from Google around, you know, what makes a best functioning team is psychologically psychological safety. The people have the permission and it's safe to speak up and ask a question and challenge. So as a self-leader, you are taking ownership. Now, l- let me just take a sideways step for a moment and and talk about something. Um you know, Freud gave us this concept of ego, superego, and id. And in, in popular culture, people talk about leaders as having an ego, right? And, and so you see the person, you know, it's all about me and it's all about my targets. Understand, understanding that um, changes the way we look at ego. When people are being what people say is ego, it's being egotistical, being egomaniacal that usually comes from having a weak ego. They are needy, When you practice self-leadership, you know how to get your thoughts and feelings and actions taken care of. And so you're better able to focus on others. So you've actually got a healthy ego. So it reduces those egotistical, the yelling, the shouting type of behaviors. You can be a lot calmer because you're taking responsibility If I give instructions to one of my team and they don't do what I expected them to do, first place I look is in the mirror. Did I set the expectations right? Because if they didn't come back rather than immediately blame them. And I have a formula in the book that says, you know, clear expectations times mindset and motivation times right behaviors equals results. So if I don't get a result, all right, I I can take the feedback. My bad. I probably didn't explain this properly. Let me give you the feedback. This is what I was looking for. Do I have your buy-in for that? Oh. So instead of yelling and screaming and and demoralizing an individual, we both take ownership and the job gets done. So addressing self first makes us a better leader. And the analogy, and it's been used by others before me, but it's 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 a great metaphor. When you're on the airplane, the steward and stewardess says... If the oxygen mask falls from the ceiling, place over your nose and mouth before assisting others. Because you're useless. If you're stressed and you're, you're, you're freaking out, you're, you're not empowering, engaging, inspiring your people. So take a breath of oxygen and then you can help others.
1: <laughs> you're no good if you've passed out. Of course, it's so obvious. <laughs> Andrew, in your book, you've got some principles of the leadership playbook. Let's go into some of the plays and the principles. This is really interesting stuff.
0: Sure. Well, we've covered the first principle, which is self-leadership comes first. You can't lead others unless you first lead yourself. The second principle is leaders are learners. And we've sort of touched on this a little bit, which is this, this willingness to, to take the feedback as the leader, not, not to imagine that you're perfect and, but to constantly take the feedback. I didn't give the instructions as effectively. I didn't get the results. So I look in the mirror and I learn. How can I do that better? And that's the, the second principle. And that gives us the third principle, which. A number of organizations Amazon for one uses this, which is progress over perfection one of the one of the things that really is a problem for organizations in this hugely adaptable world is perfection. Um, I just got back uh, last month I was in Sweden speaking for a large uh, multi country um, engineering company, and they're engineers and they love perfection. They love it. And their CEO is saying, we need to disrupt. We need to go into new markets. We need to try new things. And they go, but we don't want to do that until we're perfect. And the CEO is saying, you're going to have to go beyond that because it's going to be a learning curve. So leaders are learners. We need to make progress. It doesn't have to be perfect the first time. And this is a huge mindset shift for engineers. But to their credit, they were embracing it because they had learned to adapt through the pandemic. Then you have another leadership principle that we've talked about, and it comes out of that self leadership, that willingness to have a voice and, and encouraging your people to disagree with you. So you don't have, you're not surrounded by yes people. And as you as an individual, you need to be able to disagree with your boss in a way that's, that's not conflict. But once that the consensus has been reached or, or the direction has been agreed upon, you commit to that so let me stop there there's a there's a couple more but uh let me take a breath and and invite you to jump in on any of those one thing that you mentioned which may
1: have nothing to do with these principles and it may have something to do with the later principle is i've been in corporate america for too many decades that i want to mention and i routinely would run into you know because you again we talked about you've got your target you've got what you want to do employee that just doesn't really want to do it. Doesn't get with it. Could could work to get the the task done, but just doesn't want to. Kind of negative, but they're also kind of. Let me be a politically correct. Slightly protected. You've got to watch your Ps and Qs a little bit, and you've got to motivate this employee to just. Do the job that anybody else would be glad to do. And here I am talking about why you should do your job instead of, we've got to make the target. You, you, you kind of get my drift on where we're going. And it's sort of like, what do you do when you get this this obstinate type person that just is just doesn't kind of want to really go with the flow, but yet you've still got to be very diplomatic about it.
0: Well, Jim Collins in his book Good to Great said, "Get the right people on the bus, get the wrong people off the bus." And uh, in in the book, I talk one of the plays that I, I describe is is around talent and strengths, and and we have to understand the distinction between talent and strengths. You know, some people just have a talent. Now, you know, my name is Andrew Bryant. You know, I, I share the, the 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 same surname as a very successful basketball player who is no longer with us. I do not have the innate talent to play basketball. I just don't have it right now. I might have, you know, I might have the commitment and the strength, right. You know, think about the movie Rudy, you know, the, the the guy that was too small to play American rules football, but he had the heart for it. Right. So (laughs) you're better off with somebody who's got the talent, you know, who weighs 240 pounds and, and has the fast twitch muscle fibers. So, we need to look at our team and there's a great acronym in the book that i that is cow c o w capacity ownership and willingness right the capacity in the American football experience you know if they're two hundred and forty pounds and they've got fast twitch muscle fibers they've got natural talent for doing that are they taking ownership and are they willing right um and 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 the o can also stand for opportunity Have you put them in the right position right they've got the capacity but you haven't given them the right opportunity, you haven't put them in the right slot, you haven't played them in the right position, and are they willing? Now, if they don't have the capacity, there is no position for them and they're not willing. You've got to get them off the bus, ASAP. If they have some capacity um, and and you think they're in the wrong position, move them around and see if they're willing to do something different. So, you've got this, this diagnosis and you should look at yourself. You could, none of us are good at everything, right? I have some capacity in certain areas, right? And, and I, I make sure I, I choose the opportunities that work best for me and, and I'm willing. There are areas I'm not good and I get other people in to play that. Now, over and above that, you mention a layer of politics and protectionism, et cetera. And that is not an easy question to answer on a podcast the reality is to look at, you know, who, who is protecting that individual? Why, what is, what is the needs here? What is the currency? Why is this person being protected? Um, And it's tough for leaders to play politics. We would love to just have the best employees in the right opportunity and engage them to be motivated Um, as much as possible. um, Getting somebody to want to do it for themselves is the key and if you can't again get them off the bus the there's a there's a wonderful formula for motivation which comes out of the 1960s by a by a doctor vroom victor vroom and i love that name i think it sounds like a marvel here anti hero but vroom and i actually address this in the book but in a very in a very simplified form is vroom says if people are going to be motivated They have to have the expectation that if they put in the effort, they're going to have some level of improvement. And the simplest way to describe this is is the gym. If I go to the gym and I lift weights, I have to have the expectation that I'm going to get stronger or get fitter. Then when there is a movement, a delta, there is a change that they're going to get acknowledged or they're going to get some level of positive feedback from that. And the third component is that they care about that positive feedback. So we motivate people when we can show them that if they put in the effort, they're going to make some progress. When that progress happens, they're going to get some acknowledgement and that they care about getting that acknowledgement. If you can address those things, you can turn around a non-performing employee. If you can't, get them off the bus as quickly as possible and fill the position with somebody who can do the job.
1: You said it exactly right. I totally agree with that. And that is the way to do it. Very interesting. I know we've got a few more principles to go over. So let's, uh, let's take the next one.
0: Yeah, I had to reach for the book for a moment. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all right. So the, the next principle is executive presence. And to be a leader, you need executive presence, which I like to define as the ability to project confidence, gravitas, and poise under pressure. In addition, the ability to read the audience, which perhaps speaks a little bit to the politics that we were talking about in the previous question. So I see a lot of leaders fail because they don't step into their executive presence and and act like an executive. They get promoted, but they're still operating like a frontline supervisor, As an executive with executive presence, you're going to start to have to have executive function, start stepping back, having ideas, insights, perspectives, and being able to articulate those with some gravitas. Gravity or um, substantiveness is another way of saying that. So developing your executive presence is essential for the leader. You could be technically brilliant, but if you cannot present your idea with executive presence, it will not be adopted. And you spent time in corporate America, you know that the best ideas are not adopted. The best supported ideas are adopted. Oh, you like that?
1: Very. I'm, I'm really. <laughs> I'm pondering that very thoroughly, and I and it makes me think of several things on. Of course, training, uh, t- explaining your vision and your purpose of the company to the employees and all this sort of thing. But sometimes you get these employees and I may be going off on a tangent, but I've I have a myriad of experience in the corporate world I've never spoken about where you'll get these little groups and they think you're just on a power trip. We've got a target to make, I've got a client, I've got a deadline and I'm being as nice as I can be, but we still got to get this thing done. And the employees lower think, oh, you're just on a power trip, you, you're just a big boss. They, they don't see the big picture, they they just think you're pushing your weight around. And I've seen this sometimes and it's just, it's really weird and it's, it's, it's difficult to take care of. It may be similar to what I've said, they either on, they're either on the bus or you've got to get them off the bus, that's for sure. And it's just, I think there's a bit of yeah, maybe, maybe part of that is increasing the executive presence to solicit that that cooperation. Well, if you think about That's really what you're working with, is the cooperation of the people under you.
0: Sure. Um, and, and that's the ability to read the audience as part of executive presence. You know what what drives and inspires people, but executive presence isn't loud. In fact, if anything, it's quiet. I mean, I remember my father, may may he rest in peace when he went quiet. That's when we paid attention. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so there's, there's a certain, you know, the gravitas is, is a power, you know, it gives us the word gravity, A, a large mass, like a planet has gravity, right? So when you know your stuff and you, you have, a a history of delivering, a history of of being thoughtful, of being right, then you become listened to. Uh, Aristotle, two and a half thousand years ago, said, if you want to influence, have ethos, pathos, and logos. And ethos can be translated as, as ethics or character. It is that core of executive presence. Pathos is the empathy. We've talked about being human. And logos is the logic. But the logic is the least of the influential triad. The the number one is the, the ethos. We listen to people. Some people walk into a room and everybody's eyes turn to them and they want to know what that person thinks. And if you want to be an effective leader, you need to develop those skills because then everything else becomes a lot easier because they will listen to you. Right?
1: absolutely and one of the principles i believe that's that's we haven't discussed yet which is probably perfect timing now is as that leader to get things done you want to be it to be a safe psychologically nice environment for the employees where they love working there i've i've worked in companies and i've met people they love their company so much that they literally take less pay than they would at another company that wants them because they love it so much because the workplace is so nice and they work really well. So that executives got to set that 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 sphere, and uh, mm-hmm. and perhaps you may have some uh, comments or some principles, some more of that principle to talk about on how to accomplish that. <laughs>
0: Well, it does segue nicely. Thank you for that. Uh, and it is principle six around build the team. And psychological safety is very key to build a team. The the one the one piece of semantics I might might challenge your question with, if you if you don't mind, is being nice. Because I don't think you necessarily build an effective team with the word nice. Now this this is me being in, you know being an Englishman you know I, I had to study the etymology the the origin of words and you know when I was at a, a junior school I had a teacher with the same surname as me Bryant and he clearly did not think I lived up to the name and he picked on me mercilessly and he would hit us over the back of the knuckles with a steel ruler and that all that that kind of punishment was allowed and he had a pet peeve for the word nice. He said nice is a terrible adjective. It's inact inexact. And and in fact, if you look at the etymology, it comes from the French and originally the Latin. And nice actually means in, in inexact. It means uh it, it doesn't mean what we think it is. Right. So when we're nice, we're not being very specific, right? It, it, we're being a bit vague. We're being we're avoiding actually having the crucial conversation. And one of the plays in this, in this book, there's two plays that are relevant to this feedback and a crucial conversation. You see, if you're not performing and I'm nice and I make it all safe for you, but then a year goes by and you get your performance review and your performance review comes back and says, you didn't miss, beat your targets. You didn't meet your criteria. And you go, well, why didn't you tell me? Well, I was being nice. People would much prefer that you call them up, you know, with a positive intention and said, Hey, this behavior isn't going to get you where you want to be. You know, do you have some options and choices? Yeah, I do. Well, why don't you try this? You'll be, you are know, going to get more of a result from that. And if that's great, fine. And if it doesn't, you say, hey, we had a conversation last month about you changing your behavior. I notice you haven't. I need to call you on this and hold you accountable because it's not going to end well if you continue on this path. Now, you're going to actually love somebody who does that for you. If you make the change, you'll hate them if you don't make the change. And that's actually what a, a team is about. Having worked on sports teams as, as, as the physiotherapist and then working on executive teams and then executive leadership teams, people love a boss who sees the best in you and holds you to that standard. If I say, Hey, Tony, I know that you can do better than this. Tony, this isn't your best work. I know that you can do better. That builds the team rather than being nice. Will you forgive me for picking you up on the word? I love it. And you
1: said it so nicely. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm Italian. I I can say that.
0: So, I, so I'm British by birth. And the you know, the British invented um, you know, this sort of courteous way of speaking, um, so they can tell you to go to hell and have you thank them for giving you direct <laughs> giving them directions, right? Um, so there's that. Um oh, like which, which brings us to the last principle, and I'll just segue myself onto that one, which is diversity matters. You're an Italian American. I'm 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 a British who moved to Australia and then spent 18 years in Asia and ended up marrying a Brazilian American. And now live in portugal right diversity of experience diversity of gender diversity matters um we we want to build teams and build companies with different perspectives and whether it's that's gender or it's age it's it's nationality you want different ideas on your team because it, it builds a much stronger team when you do that Right. If you if if you've got any dog breeders listening, you know if you know a pedigree is beautiful, but if you if you inbreed and inbreed and inbreed, you get weak hips. You you know a mongrel is a is, is the sturdier dog, and so make sure that you, as a leader, are encouraging diversity of opinion. Nobody has a monopoly on a good idea. It was a, a a CEO of a company taught me that because he was always encouraging different ideas. And, and that was in an innovation space, and it works. So make sure you're checking your own biases at the door that uh, somebody else might have a better idea than you, and that's what diversity really means.
1: I love it, and I'm really thinking with this, and I'm going to listen to this again. These are really good points, and I hope everyone really zones into this. These are great points for the workplace. I see the application of it for all my tenure in the corporate world, as well as in the what do we call this? It's still the corporate world, but we're at home. So the home, the home world.
0: <laughs> yeah, we we are. You know, we we we're struggling around our linguistics as well. I mean. You know, you and I are speaking virtually here. Um, and so people are talking about, well, a live event and a virtual event. Well, hang on a moment. There's still live people at the virtual event. And so we have to update that, you know, in person or remote. And, uh, so it clearly is a hybrid workspace. And we we and I talk about the the last chapter of the book is the future of work and you know, looking at uh, co working spaces and and how companies can come together with with facilitated events rather than just the classic nine to five micromanagement which is we've been doing since the early 1900s and you know when we came off the farms and went into factories we really haven't updated and considered the workspace for how to get the best out of humans. And there's still plenty more work to do on that. And with the acceleration of digital transformation, that can be an assistance to do that. Um, I see the future of work really us partnering with technology rather than being replaced by it, right? The history just shows that humans are never replaced by technology. If we partner with it, it it can, uh, it can leverage us to, to do more of what we want to do and be more purposeful and be more effective.
1: Well said, and you have some plays in your book to separate from the principles. And I'd love to kind of go over some of the plays and, uh, see how that fits with the principle and how that would, would work in our work, in our work day world, whether it's with people in person, live people or live people across the world, virtually.
0: I love the way you pick up on this. Uh, it's always great to be interviewed by uh, somebody who listens and uh, so forgive me I'm going to ramble them. Look, there there are 12 plays and we don't have time to go through all of them obviously, you know, by the book, but the one that I I want to share with you, I've already mentioned, but and I'll, I'll I'll dive a little bit deeper into it because if you take one thing away from this interview, this podcast, It's the ability to give effective feedback in over 25, nearly 25 years of of doing this for, for organizations. It is the one thing that I've seen is done badly. And the moment it gets fixed, the, the increase in performance is, is exponential. So how do we give effective feedback? Well, firstly, why doesn't feedback work as well in humans? Because humans do not consider all feedback is equal. It depends who it comes from and whether it's positive or negative. Now, if I'm I'm sitting in a room and there's a thermostat for the air conditioner, right? If it's too hot in the room, I give feedback to the compressor, which increases the cooling. If it's too cold, I give negative feedback, which decreases the compressor's power and the room heats back up again, right? Right. The air conditioner does not get upset whether you give it negative or positive feedback. It's all feedback. But humans tend to personalize feedback that, that in, is not reinforcing their behavior. Right? So all feedback is not equal. And we know that, that people that get feedback based on their strengths are 30 times more likely to be engaged. So when giving feedback, we need to think of an acronym, and I use FIF, which stands for Fact, Impact, Future. We need to deliver the feedback as a fact about the behavior and separate it from the human being, right? So I might say, you know, hey, Tony, you know, you're, you're blinking a lot while I'm talking to you right now and scratching your ear, right? Right. Now, there's no positive or negative. That was an observation. You just did it, right? And now you're going to worry about scratching your ear and blinking, right? So it's a bringing awareness to what is happening in real time. This means managers, leaders have to be really good at observational skills. And I just demonstrated that on a video call. So I didn't physically have to be in the room. And you're nodding, which means you agree with me, right? In this case, so an, a behavior has an impact, right? And if we ask the person we're giving the feedback what they think the impact is rather than telling them, hey, you 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 did this, and therefore that means you're not paying attention to me, well, that would be the wrong premise for a start. We'd say, hey, you know, I noticed you're scratching your ear and blinking. What do you think the impact is on me? Well, in this case, the impact is I I think you're listening to me. I'm feeling listened to. I'm feeling acknowledged. So this is actually good feedback. So in future, what I want you to do, well, I want you to keep doing, it. I want you to continue because the future scratching. is <laughs> well, whatever. You know, st- so I'm just using, I'm trying to make it this. I'm trying to make this a practical example for the observe for the, for people. I remember my aim is to make this a very hands-on book, not a thirty-five thousand feet abstract concept book. Can you, as a leader, observe behaviors? We might say, hey, you know, Simon, we just came out of the meeting. I noticed in the meeting you didn't say a word. Simon, I know that you have ideas and insights on this topic we talked about. Simon, if you don't contribute to the meeting, what do you think is the impact? And Simon says, do I don't know? I said, come on, think about it, Simon. If you don't speak up, what's going to happen to the project if they don't get the benefit of your insight? Well, it's going to be delayed because they're not going to be thinking about this. Great. What else is the impact on your credibility, your executive presence in this organization, if you don't speak up? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Well, think about it. What do you think the impact is? I'm invisible. Yes. If you're invisible, when we come round to promotion and I'm saying, Hey, we should promote Simon. Everybody goes, yeah, but he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything. What's the impact of that? You're not going to get the promotion. So Simon, we're going to go into the similar meeting next week. So that's in the future. What are you going to do differently? I'm going to contribute my ideas. Great. I'm going to hold you accountable to that, Simon. We'll see you next week.
1: That is a great example of self-leadership by an executive who creates a nice, safe environment. And everything that we talked about in this interview, wonderful, loved it. Once again, we talked about the new leadership playbook with Andrew Bryant, and you can find him again at selfleadership.com. Andrew, some great points. It it really impacts and resonates with me having been in so many different positions in the corporate world, as well as the entrepreneur world. Thank you so much for sharing
0: with us today. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you, Tony.
1: Hey, thanks for hanging out with me while I featured an elite entrepreneur who took his vision to reality. I love this about self-leadership we discussed the new leadership playbook with Andrew Bryan. We talked about many factors which are listed in the book. You should check that out. Some things like how a leader deals with employees when there's a time constraint, how not to be nice, but to be a leader, to be effective, and how to deal with This new world, whatever the language is, people working at the company, people working physically, people working around the world, to me, it's very, very different. And what are the challenges and how do you be an effective leader in all of that? We talked about self-leadership. What is it? How to use that to put people together. We talked about multiple principles of, of the book and some of the plays, how to Get that gap closed so that people respect you, how to have that executive presence. And I really like that point about silence. That is really, really good. Instead of force, speak more softly. And it's that pause. It's that silence. I really like that. I'm going to check that out again. And we talked about how to deliver to bring about a psychologically safe workplace and a whole lot more. So let me ask you this question. What did we discuss that resonated with you? Tell us your story. And please remember supporting the show with a nice review on Apple Podcasts as well as comments on the video platforms. All right don't be don't don't make it a nice review. make it an effective review. I'm going to change my nomenclature now. and of course share this with a few friends to help them too. They'll thank you nicely. All right. use this and let's help you move on your journey to success. Thanks and remember just take action. Success awaits those who persevere and remain steadfast despite the odds. Sow good seeds. Do good deeds. And join me on the next episode of The Tony D'Erso Show.